We're beginning a series in the book of Philippians today, looking first at chapter 1, which you heard read. And what we're going to be looking at through chapter 1 is Paul's partnership with the Philippians, Paul's prayer for the Philippians, and Paul's path for the Philippians. So let's look first at Paul's partnership with the Philippian. This this uh, epistle is called the friendliest epistle. It's the epistle of joy. It's the epistle in which Paul talks about his relationship with the church with which he has an excellent relationship, a, a wonderful, encouraging fellowship, a partnership is shared between Paul and the Philippian church. We see that in verse 3, when he says, I thank God every time I remember you, every time I think about you, I am so grateful to God for putting you into my lives, my life. Verses 4 and 5, I pray for you, in all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul enjoys his partnership with them in the gospel. And verse 7, It is right for me to feel this way about you since I have you in my heart. I have you in my heart. And verse 8, I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul is in prison as he writes this. He misses the church. They are not able to be physically together, but he holds them in his heart. And I can relate to that sentiment as I hold you in my heart and miss being with you, but understand that for a season that is not possible, and yet we are still partners in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This relationship, this partnership was formed by a shared, deep, costly commitment. Now, recently, a study was done of soldiers who had served in Afghanistan. When these soldiers came home, they were interviewed, and uh, not to anyone's surprise, they exhibited some signs of PTSD. What they had gone through was very difficult. But what the researchers were surprised by was their desire almost to a person to go back. Because as they explained it, their sense of unity, of purpose, their sense of togetherness, their sense of living for something, sacrificing themselves for something bigger than themselves was so strong that it gave their lives such depth of meaning and purpose and value that they wanted to experience that the rest of their lives, and they didn't experience it in their life back home. Henry, well, in Shakespeare's play, Henry V, we see a similar situation where uh, Shakespeare writes that the, the night before a battle, the king wandered through the camp in disguise, mingling with his soldiers. He was inspired by their courage even in the face of death. And then the next morning he went to them and said these lines, This day is called the Feast of Crispian. He that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand a tiptoe when this day is named. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. And gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed. They were not here. 
and rem reminds the men of the greatness of their cause, the honor that will be theirs for having fought in a conflict of such consequence. He reminds them, too, of the special bond that is and will be theirs for having braved this battle together. And then, uh, in response to the phrase from Shakespeare, Band of Brothers, there was a a book written and a mini-series created with this same theme. When there is a great cause and great unity around that cause, we get a sense of who we truly are when we participate in that kind of relationship, in that kind of cause. And it is a glorious thing. And Paul experienced that with the church at Philippi. Paul, um, rather than a band of brothers, uh, encountered a circle of sisters when he first went to Philippi. He was looking for worshipers and found a women's prayer meeting along the river, and it was to those women that he first shared the gospel, and uh, particularly the woman named Lydia responded, and the church in Philippi was born. Paul goes on to thank them in chapter 4 for their gift of money. While he's in prison, back in that day, prisoners were not taken care of like they are today, financially with food or whatever. They counted on people outside helping them. And the church at Philippi helped Paul while he was in prison, helped him financially. In verse 6, uh, an often quoted verse uh, Paul is confident that the one who began a good work in them will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. I think it's important for us to acknowledge the context of this, that there is already a strong partnership uh, that has, has been formed. Paul is encouraging them that even if he never can return to them, God will continue to work through them. This is not a call to passivity, as it sometimes is used that... Um, well, God's going to complete the work, so I don't really have to worry about it. No, uh, this is a response to their already active participation in the work of the kingdom of God. And Paul is confident that God will continue to use them in that work. And it is very important, as the bands of brothers and the circles of sisters of the past have discovered, that when we are looking for a cause, that cause is always outside of ourselves. So many people today, in response to whatever challenge comes, want to find what they want. They want to serve their own desires, their own hopes, their own dreams, their own wants. And they continue to fight for their own selfish wants and do not therefore find this kind of partnership, this kind of meaning and purpose that Paul is talking about here. It is vital that we find something outside of ourselves. And Christianity in the 21st century, in the Western Hemisphere, can often look like a group of people wanting to have God put his stamp of approval on our wants, our desires, our hopes, and our dreams, and our demands. Whereas to truly serve God is to serve God and allow God's hopes and dreams and vision and purpose to become ours. And that is when we find this true purpose 
and true partnership in the work of the kingdom of God. Next, let's, let's look at Paul's prayer for the Philippians in uh, beginning in verse 9. This is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. First, he prays for love. Love as part of this kingdom work is paramount. It is the first and most important thing. And notice what he says, how he prays this, that your love may abound more and more. Well, abounding is already more and more, is it not? Isn't abounding like energy and um, magnitude? But he says that your love may abound more and more. He's just piling it on that love is the most important thing and love should fill our hearts so much that we are then part of the partnership to declare the kingdom of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, your love abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. And I think it's important here to bring a little Greek into this. The word knowledge is uh, epigonosco. Gnosko is knowledge. Epigonosco is magnified knowledge. So he wants us to really understand. He wants us to really know the truth. And then depth of insight, which could probably be better translated common sense. Earl Palmer was the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle for a number of years, and he writes of an experience he had going back to his alma mater, Princeton Seminary, and hearing a speaker, uh, the pastor of the largest Presbyterian church in the world, a church of 40,000 members. When asked uh, how they determined who should be in leadership in this church, the pastor explained that they uh, give people a test to see if they are um, ready to be in leadership. And they uh, test them on very typical things. Just like when uh, I became a pastor, I had to take my ordination exams to test me on uh, things like Bible knowledge, understanding of theology, and church history. But then... This pastor went on to say, and then there's another test that we give, and that is a test of common sense. They want their leadership to have not only knowledge, not only understanding of, of the truths, but common sense. This is what Paul wants for the church at Philippi as well. He goes on then to say, filled, oh, that you may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. Purity means genuine and sincere. In the Greek, it means no wax. Because in that day, if you had a piece of pottery uh, and it was cracked, you could fill it with wax and then paint over it or um, cover it somehow so that people wouldn't know. But if you held it up to the light, people could see that there was wax and it. it was not genuine. It was not um, as valuable as they were letting on that it should, that it was. So we are called to be pure, to be genuine, to not have any wax, not any fake 
about us and blameless. And that word means not causing offense. Filled with the fruit of righteousness. This is how we are called to live. Peter says, live such good lives among the pagans that they will see that God is at work among you. Jesus says, by their fruit, you will know them. And what are the fruit of righteousness? Well, faithfulness to the gospel for one, but also we find the fruit of the Spirit would be the fruit of righteousness. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And now I need to say something. Carrying a Christian flag, yelling out slogans about God, and storming the Capitol do not exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of righteousness. Listen again. Thinking about the angry zeal that we saw on Wednesday. And consider if that exhibited in any way love or joy or peace or patience or kindness or goodness or faithfulness or gentleness or self-control. No, no way. Folks, be careful. Be careful. It is heartbreaking to see people claim Christ and do despicable things. Throughout the history of the Ku Klux Klan, we've seen them have Christian symbols. But don't believe it for a second, folks. You can have a Christian symbol and declare the name of God, but not have the Spirit of God and not be in any way contributing to the work of the kingdom of God. Carrie Newhoff, an um, expert on the church in the 21st century, said the culture needs an alternative to itself, not an echo of itself. Self-service is not service to God. And as we heard last week, the aroma of Christ should characterize us. Now, there are times indeed where that aroma, as we heard from uh, Doug Trimble last week, uh, is the aroma of death. He gave us illustrations of, of someone who didn't want to hear it. And that is true. The, the, the Bible says that the cross of Christ is a stumbling block. But it shouldn't be Christians and our attitudes and our behaviors that are stumbling blocks. Toby Mack, the a contemporary Christian musician, said, be the reason someone loves Jesus, not the reason someone hates Christians. Paul's path now for the Philippians. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is verse 27. That means we work and strive together as one. And he goes on to say, 
without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Now, again, I've, I've talked about this in previous sermons. People are saying that people live in fear of COVID and that's wrong and that demonstrates a lack of trust in God. Uh, that is not at all a scriptural idea at all. <laughs> uh, the, the Bible does not say uh, when you're walking a trail and see a rattlesnake to go up and try to shake its hand. Well, you know what I mean. The Bible does not say, tell your kids to go play in the middle of Interstate 95. We should be fearful of things that are truly dangerous. And COVID, of course, is truly dangerous. But what this word means here is don't be startled. And it really uh, gives us the image of a horse startled. And you, you know what a horse does when it's startled. It rears up and if someone's on its back riding, often that person is thrown off. The horse goes wild and doesn't have any sense of what it's supposed to do. And that's what this, is, that's what this word is talking about here. Don't be startled by the opposition. Know that opposition is there, but have such a firm sense of God's being with you, God's grace and God's mercy and God's truth, that those, that, that opposition doesn't startle you and veer you off course. We must not give offense or lead another to sin. How we live out our faith, how we are ambassadors of the kingdom of God is very important. And Paul makes that very clear here. And now, as we've looked at um, Paul's partnership, Paul's prayer, and Paul's path, I'm going to close with this reverend's recommendations for Ridley. Now, I know that there are a lot of you who are not necessarily part of the Ridley Park Presbyterian Church, but alliteration is fun. So I... Um, used this reverend's recommendations for Ridley, but what I really mean is my perspective on how we should behave based on what scripture says and hopefully common sense. The first thing that I want to share is that the ends never ever justify the means. Many people think today that if their cause is righteous, they can get what they want with whatever means they believe they have at their disposal. And I tell you, the God that we serve does not need us lying and cheating and stealing to accomplish his purposes. God is bigger than that. And if you if you believe that you have to lie and cheat and steal to get something that you believe God wants, you don't have to and you shouldn't. We cannot use unrighteous means for a righteous cause. The second thing that I would share with you is that people are better than you give them credit for. Truly, truly evil people are very, very rare. Most people are trying to do the best they can with the information and talents and abilities they have. The demonizing that characterizes so much of our culture is not helpful. It is highly destructive. It is not helpful to uh, the future of our society, nor is it helpful for Christians to adopt those um, ideas. Uh, it is not helpful at all for the role we have as ambassadors of the kingdom of God. Now, while people are better than you give them credit for, I would say next that people are worse than you give them credit for. 
Don't ever trust in one person to be the solution. No one gets it right all the time. Everybody is a mix of good motivations and selfish motivations, and sometimes we know it and sometimes we don't. The problem comes when people put their trust in a person or a group of people rather than putting their trust in God. God alone is the answer. God alone is the one in whom we can place our total trust. And finally, the enemy can use anyone. We often think, well, those people are bad, so the devil's working through them, but not through me. And that thought, I believe, probably planted by the devil himself. We have to be very careful, not even if we know that we're right, not to allow the enemy to infiltrate our thoughts, to infiltrate our actions. We must always, always, in every circumstance, make sure that we are behaving as those who are part of the kingdom of God, conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Friends, we can't expect the world around us to get this. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit and the Word of God to guide us. And we can't force people around us to trust the Word of God by force, by bullying. We help them to trust the Word of God through our winsome approach, our love, our grace, and some will receive and some won't. But our call is to love and to serve and to care and to lift up the gospel of Jesus Christ in word, in deed, and in attitude, in how we relate to each other and to the world.